I don't think I drank in high school for stress or anxiety or anything. I think it was about just being cool and partying and having fun. All of a sudden, I realized that the drinking helped me in all these social situations that it just just made me feel a little more comfortable. And without even knowing it, I started to rely upon it. My daughter walked into our bedroom one morning after a particularly bad night. They were all bad at this point, but this was particularly bad. She walked in and looked at me laying in bed, unable to get up. She was nine at the time and just had this fear in her eyes. I think she thought that I was dying. Well, the admission process was the worst part about it. It is the most degrading, humiliating. That's a whole different kind of bottom. I've never been to prison. I don't know what prison's like, but the feeling of, okay, strip down, take all your clothes off, and here are two guys looking at every inch of you, taking pictures of you. You're sitting there just saying to yourself, how did I get here? This episode of the Kintsugi Podcast is brought to you by Pause, Breathe, Reflect, which can help you bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. Hey there, it's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another story of connection. This week, we have a real gem. It's an honest conversation and a story about connecting to the cool kid that is within us all. I met this week's guest in a really cool way. Back in 2019, pre-pandemic, I did a talk for a company out in California. And one of the sales leaders in attendance happens to live in the same county I do here in Northern New Jersey. So when we got back home, I did a little bit more work with him and his team on how they could prevent a bad moment from turning into a bad day. Then the pandemic hit. And we didn't nurture the relationship except to check out our posts on LinkedIn. But if we fast forward to 2023, he was watching his daughter play soccer, talking to another dad, and he shared with the dad, hey, I know a guy. Because in Jersey, it's helpful to know a guy. And that's how I got connected with this week's guest. He is a like-hearted human, a husband, a dad, an athlete. Like all of us, he's trying to figure this out as he goes along. He's still in the early days of changing his relationship with alcohol. And I think today he is one of the cool kids. So if you're ready, come into a comfortable position, take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out and connect with this week's guest, Dan Carity. 
Dan, brother, good to see you. Yeah, you too, Michael. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. So I'd like to start here. What's one good thing that's happened to you already today before our conversation? My daughter, who's home from, she only had a half day of school. She wasn't feeling well yesterday. So I said, I just skipped today. She wanted to come to the grocery store with me. And I had to, uh, I had to pick up some stuff for my wife for things she's making for Thanksgiving. And I'm a bad shopper. And I don't take the necessary time to find the right things. I always grab the first thing I see, you know, and my daughter saved me on two separate items from getting the wrong thing and driving my wife mad when I get home. She made sure, no, 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 that's not it, dad. It's down here. We got to get this instead. And it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, my daughter always has my back. She takes good care of me, keeps me out of trouble. So uh, I was very happy about that. <laughs> that is awesome. I like to think that our kids make us better people. Oh, absolutely. And that's the other thing that happens to me. Is so much of my life revolves around my kids, which I guess it always should have, but it didn't before I stopped drinking. But I had the best conversation with my son on the way to school today just about him growing up. He just turned 10. And I was just talking to him about the differences between when he was seven and eight and when he's 10 and just how proud I am of him, of who he's becoming and how kind he is and good to the people around him. And you just saw this joy it put on his face. And oh, it's just like that simple exchange in the five minutes going to school. It makes my day. And I think it helps set the course for a good day for him as well. So I love that stuff. Well, what that really is, is about, hey, I see you, son, I see you. I see how you're growing. And we all just want to be seen, right? You know, we just, we want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want to be appreciated or loved. So that's beautiful. So back to the shopping though, Dan, we got to get back to like serious topics. (laughs) So are you a non-list type of shopper? Do you just go into the store and wing it? Absolutely. I wing it and it's like... That is so dangerous, man. I don't know why, but I'm always... I'm in a rush for no reason. It's something I've really tried to work on in my life, but I'm always in a rush. It's, you know, when I'm driving my car, get out of my way. When there's no reason, I have no time limit to get somewhere, but everything is a rush in my life. And so going to the store, it's like, how fast can I rip through here? Rather than, you know, take my time, make sure I hit every aisle, get the things I need. I have to constantly talk to myself to try to be better, but I still, I'm far from perfect. <laughs> well, I think we all are, but as long as you're not knocking down little old ladies in aisle five, no. I think we're, I think <laughs> we're good. Well, at least we have a solid foundation to build upon so we can help you, Dan, on this, slowing down while shopping. Yeah. <laughs> So for those that don't know you, I always love to ask this question. So we're going to take what you do professionally off to the side. How would you describe who you are? Oh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged dad first. I'm a husband in progress and a bit of an athlete as well. And I, I look at things in that order. You know, the dad first, I do whatever I can for my kids. I brought them into this world. They deserve the world from me. And I try to deliver on that on a daily basis and just try to be there for them. And then as a husband, I did a bad job for many years and neglected my wife. And we have years of healing to do. Uh, So I'm just trying to be better and trying to be present for her and trying to prioritize her instead of myself. And then the athlete thing is 
I always had these grand dreams of all these things I was going to do. And I always watched other people do them, marathons and Ironman and things like that. And always say, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. But I never did because I always came up with an excuse of, of why I couldn't make it happen. And now in sobriety, I'm making those things happen. So I think in a nutshell, that's, that's who I am. Thanks for sharing. Can I do a little word check with you? Sure. So you mentioned that you consider yourself a bit of an athlete. My correction, you're an athlete. <laughs> You've heard the words, you are an Ironman. Yeah, this is true. So let's, let's own it. You're an athlete. All right. Own it with as much gusto as you want to own it with, but you are, my friend, an athlete. So we'll talk about your wife here in a bit as we dive more into your story. But as you shared just a second ago about your kids, there was a moment there where you paused when you were thinking about your kids. I want to pull that thread just a little bit more. What does it mean to you to be a dad? I have these two beautiful little gifts that it's my responsibility to help mold them into good people. And I, you know, in kids, you see how pure they are, pure in their thoughts and their wants, even in their needs. And to have that responsibility, to be fortunate enough to have that responsibility is something that I take so seriously now. And I try to balance what they want every day, but also what I think they need every day. And it's a challenge. And I embrace that challenge. And I try to, at the very least, I try to have one or two, like we were just talking about, going to the grocery store or in the, in the car with my son or whatever. I try to have even one 20-second moment with each of them every day. Sometimes there's hours we have together. Our times it's just moments, something that we can hold on to every day. And it usually comes up because we, I'd say 90% of the time, we finish our days by talking about what we're grateful for from that day. And so often they'll touch on that brief conversation that we had, whatever it was about. And you see, you see that going in and them processing it and what a difference that makes. And, you know, as a person and as a dad, that feels good. It makes me feel like, okay, you're, you're doing something right. So I, I love that. You're doing a lot right. And we'll, we'll get more into that here in a bit. So the show is about connection. So here are two questions about connection. Is there something that your parents used to say or do when you were younger that is still with you today that influences how you show up today? My dad was the, I don't care what you do, just be the best you can be at it. The best. He used to drive that home. I don't care if you play soccer, if you dance, if, you, if you're just going to be a student, whatever it is that you're going to be, you're going to be the best you can be at it. And I believe in my kids working hard. I don't care what they, what they do. I don't care if they play an instrument or my daughter plays soccer, my son plays baseball. My son's first love is fishing, which I don't understand at all. I hate fishing. <laughs> I don't even want to put the worm on the hook. Like it's, like, it's so awful to me. For a guy who's rushing, that could be the worst possible hobby. Or actually, it might be the best hobby for you to slow down, but it wouldn't be the hobby I think you would gravitate towards knowing how fast you want to move. It's the most beautiful thing for me to watch. His patience is off the charts. I don't get it. I don't know how he has it. <laughs> it's nothing like me, but I love to watch it. And then I love the peace that I find going out there with him and sitting on the dock, and just talking 
and waiting. It's pretty incredible. But, you know, so I, I try to, even though I don't know anything about fishing, I do everything I can to help him, whether it's YouTube videos or reading about stuff or bringing him different places to try different stuff, because I want him to get the most out of it. I want my kids, whatever it is that they choose, to work hard at it and get a lot out of it and be good at it. Um, so I get that from my dad. And my mom, I've always said, is like the glue of our family. She has always kept us all close together, just shown unconditional love. That want to be together, but also that push. Those are the two things I think I, I got from both of my parents that, that I still thrive on a bit. Yeah, no, I see, I see and hear that. Just that connection piece, which is to the spirit of the show, but also that drive to create something better. You know, to have an opportunity or be in your moments and fully live them, fully experience them. And I hear you sharing that with your son, which is really cool. All right, here's another connection story. My wife and I love couple origin stories. In essence, how did you meet your wife? We were both living in New York, but we were in California. I was there working on the show, So You Think You Can Dance? And she was there visiting a friend. Uh, it was her best friend who actually worked on the show with me as well. So he and I and some other people were having lunch after we filmed a show and Natasha had flown in from New York and was straight off the plane, walked into the restaurant, said hello to him and made her way to the bathroom. And I turned to him and said, who is that woman? And he said, please, that's my best friend. She just got out of a bad relationship. Like she needs some time leave her alone. <laughs> and I, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> and she walked back from the bathroom and sat down at the table across from me. And I just started chatting her up and uh, did not stop talking to her. And I just remember, first of all, her eyes. My wife has these beautiful big eyes that I was just staring at while we were talking. But she had this laugh, almost obnoxiously loud laugh that you could hear throughout the whole restaurant and did not care. And I, I loved that about her. We went out on a date two nights later, three nights later, and we're together ever since. How long have you been married? We've been married for 13 years, together for 17 years. And, you know, I always say like she didn't stand a chance. I was not letting her get away. And she tried. She tried in the early weeks and months of us dating. And then, you know, tumultuous times in our relationship when we were dating a lot of from my drinking and things like that, where she tried to break up with me, tried to get away from me. And I just would not let her get away because she was too special. We were too perfect together. So she stuck with me. <laughs> and you knew there was something there, I imagine, at that restaurant because you were making her laugh. Oh, yeah. There was just this instant, to use the word connection. Chemistry. Chemistry. Yeah. You know, the whole love at first sight thing, you can believe it. You don't have to believe it. I mean, we, we fell for each other immediately and could not get enough of each other. Everybody could feel it too. Everybody knew it. Everyone who was around us was like, you guys seem like you've been together forever. It was just instant for us. Serendipity. For sure. And I imagine your friend who was there after the dinner was over, he probably was like, oh gosh. It's over. Oh. She's hooked. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And he knew it. You knew it. And I had I had a bit of a reputation 
as a bit of a player. I didn't have the best reputation when, when it came to women. And he knew that very well. So he was like trying to protect her at the same time. But he was like, once you guys were two together, I knew there was nothing I could do about it. I knew this was at least going to continue for a while. So he's like, I just, he had to step out of it and just kind of let it happen. Let it be. Yeah. Let it be. (laughs) All right, let's get into your story. So I finished your book a few days ago, uh, if I'm being honest. And before we get into it, Dan, I just, I want to give you credit for showing up and struggling through and being raw and honest and messy and just being the person you are to get to this point in time. Cause I kept on flipping the page and I was like, whoa. And I was like, whoa. And I also want to give a shout out to your wife who maybe your son got his patience from your wife. Yeah. Before we dive into the story, I just want to pour into you one guy to another guy, which is something that most guys don't really say, but I honor your path and how you're coming together in that Kintsugi spirit. So thanks for showing up in the way that you are today and writing this book, because I can only imagine it's going to help a whole bunch of humans all across the world. Thank you. I mean, that was the, that was the goal. I shouldn't say that. I was writing it for myself at first, because it started as, as journaling in rehab and just continued when I got out of rehab. But then after a while, I started to recognize, as you just said, that this could possibly help other people because in my recovery, the people who were willing to do their documentaries or write their books or do their podcasts about it made such a huge difference for me. More than anything, on such a basic level, it made me believe it was possible to find life after drinking. On that basic level, I didn't think it was possible. I was convinced that I was just giving up drinking so that I could help my wife and take care of my kids, but that my life was over. And these other people, by sharing their stories, made me realize maybe there's something more here. Maybe there's something better here. Maybe, maybe I really can do this and, and have an awesome life. And that was the, the, the spark behind it. And the fact that, that my book could possibly do that for some other people is why I put it out there in the first place. Yeah, you're doing it. You're in the process of doing it. So going back to wordsmithing, you are an athlete and you're doing this thing, which is really, <laughs> really awesome to see. So can you take us to that first day, that first day of drinking? Here you were growing up in a little little town in northern New Jersey. We're not too far away from each other. Upscale town, you know, good community. You're an athlete. Your mom and dad are, are good, hardworking folks. Based on the reading, it looks like you have a pretty charmed life. I did. (laughs) So lead us to that moment where you took your first drink and really had your first experience drinking a lot. I think you referenced that you were a pass out drinker or pass out drunk. I'm not sure if the right language, but can you bring us back to that day? Because that started early for you in high school, right? Yeah, it started the summer going into high school. So I have four older brothers and sisters, my brothers being nine and seven years older than me. So I had been watching them and not just them, their friends as well. You know, I thought were so cool. I was watching them party in their high school years and and just out of high school and thinking that's so awesome. and, And look how much fun they're having. And I should do that. I can't wait to do that too. And so 
I was waiting for that, that moment. You know, it was like, oh, now that I'm out of eighth grade, I'm heading into high school. Now it's my turn to party like that. I couldn't wait. I thought it was like a rite of passage almost. And that very first time, you know, it was like, let's get a case of beer. And I was with two or three of my friends and, and they came over to my parents' house. My parents weren't home. My one brother was there and we started drinking beer and it was awful. I, I, it tasted awful. I didn't, At that age, you couldn't have enjoyed the taste of beer. It was terrible. I remember that age. I was like, why do people drink this stuff? Yeah, it was terrible. I hated it, but I wasn't sipping on it, right? It was, I remember taking a couple sips and then we shotgunned a beer. And then we were pouring the biggest glasses and seeing who could chug it the fastest. And it turned into an immediate game. It wasn't about having a good drink or enjoying the beer. It was how much can we drink? How fast? And I drank, I don't even know how many beers that night, but I pounded as fast as I could. And I blacked out and I passed out. That set the tone for what I was going to do moving forward. It was, I remember waking up thinking, man, that was, that was crazy. That was wild. When are we going to do it again? And I, I did it again, probably three, four days later. So you weren't hung over the first time? I don't think so. I, I honestly, I don't remember. I don't remember a hangover, but gift and a curse. You can look at it how you want. Even if I drank all night, I could wake up in the morning, eh, a little foggy, but I could get to the gym and work out and feel fine. And I had friends who always, you know, out of commission the next day. You know, I have a, a brother-in-law who he and I partied together for years. He's out of commission for two days after a night out together. I'm up the next morning ready to go. So because it never slowed me down either the next day, I think that's part of why I never saw it as a problem. So that first time, you know, it, again, not about the taste. I didn't like it. I never grew to like it. It was always get me back to that feeling. Get me back to that little bit out of control in my head. I liked that. And I, I just craved more of it. And so here you are, you're entering your freshman year of high school. You have your first experience with alcohol. You drink until you pass out. The next morning, you're like, oh my God, guys, that was so much fun. I can only picture if text messaging was a thing back then, we would just go back and forth about how cool it was and the stories get bigger and bigger and how much Dan drank and how much your other friends drank. And now it's a thing. And what I hear, Dan, in the initial phases of your story, this was about being part of the cool kids. Was it not like grown up, cool like your brothers and sisters? So a little bit of the chase is like, look at me. I'm a grown up cool kid now. Hell yeah. And the kids in my class who weren't drinking, I didn't think they were as cool as we were. Oh, certainly not. And through reading your book, you're excelling at high school. Like you're a great athlete. You're one of the stars, if not the star in your soccer team. You're not failing school, right? You're doing fairly well. Yeah. So here you are drinking a lot through your high school years and not just getting by, but doing fairly well, relatively speaking. I was excelling, I would say. And, you know, being the youngest of the kids, my brother has gotten to some trouble in high school. My sister's not as much, but not perfect kids. By the time my parents got to me, they were a little exhausted, I think, of, of parenting. 
they just kind of set these parameters of, okay, get good grades, remain captain of your soccer team, keep dancing at, at our dance studio. You do those things. You can do whatever you want. And I, so I did, you know, and I, I had no problem juggling those things, getting A's and B's and occasional C, captain of the soccer team, dancing, winning awards at the dance competitions and getting wasted at least two nights a week. And as we got further into it, junior year, senior year, there was a third night of the week, whether it was Thursday or Sunday night. And by the time I was halfway through senior year, it was like whatever night we could get alcohol, I was drinking. And it was usually beer or did you start mixing in liquor? Oh, no. I would say by middle of sophomore year, I discovered things like Jägermeister and um, Southern Comfort and all that crap and realized I could just get a bottle of that and do some shots and I can get there much quicker. Oh, easy. And I loved sharing it with people, right? It was like, I felt so great. Here I am with my bottle, pour a shot. Oh yeah, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a shot. It made me feel like I was even cooler, even more in control of everyone's partying. Yeah, because you were the chief party guy. You being an extrovert, this was your turf. This is your vibe. People are like, oh my, I want to be like Dan. This is cool. And can I just say this? Because you know I love you, brother, right? In high school, I used to hate guys like you. Oof. Because I was a rule follower. I was like, <laughs> I'm not drinking. I'm going to bed early. I'm going to try to be a good athlete. I'm going to play by the rules. And then there were other guys in school that were drinking like you were drinking. They were smoking. They were doing all these like forbidden things that you're not supposed to do, Michael. They were performing... Like my sport was baseball. They were good players. And I'm like, this is so unfair. They're doing all the wrong things and I'm doing all the right things and I don't seem to be beating them. Like what's up with that? So I've grown over the years. So <laughs> I can appreciate differences. So no longer rippling hate out into the world. But guys like you in high school used to aggravate the crap out of me because I was like, how are they doing it? Yeah, you know, I remember specifically my senior year of high school. It was like first week of September. It was the night before our opening day game. And we were supposed to be a really good team that year. So high expectations. And I was at a party the night before. And one of the other captains of our soccer team was there. And he was, you know, pretty, pretty much a straight arrow kind of kid. And he saw me getting after it at the party. And he said, dude, we have a game in the morning. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, get out of my face. I have no time for you. And I woke up the next morning. I went out. I had a hat trick the next day, you know? And I mean, I had to be peeled out of bed to get to that game. And I had a hat trick. And that, that you know, it was like those kind of things just fed the beast. I felt like I was invincible. You referenced before about if it was a different time, what the text messages would have been like or the pictures. If there were cell phone cameras at that time, my behavior never would have existed. It couldn't have. It would have had to have been cut off because I could not get away with what I was doing from parents, from coaches, from school administrators. I mean, I would have been shut down. But there was none of it, right? There was no proof of what I did the day before. So I just marched on. Just stories from hungover high school kids. Yeah. That's all that existed at that point in time. So let's fast forward. You get through high school, you're off to school, but then you're the dance career really starts to blossom. And I give you credit. Here you start drinking to be part of the cool kids. 
and I think you'll appreciate what I'm about to say next. You get into dance, and I know your parents have a dance background, but being a boy of your age, being a man of your age, getting into dance is not necessarily something that the cool kids are doing. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but you're excelling at this. And now bring us into your early adult life because now the drinking becomes even a bigger thing. Because now you're you've moved to LA. You're at the tip of the spear in terms of your career. At least that's how I read it. So can you share more about that period of time, Dan? Yeah, well, it all happened too fast because I worked very hard. I took a million classes a week. And because I was taking classes, I was networking and meeting different people. So there was hard work involved, but there was also, I mean, this is life, right? Right place, right time kind of thing that I just, I came across and met and befriended some big people in the dance world as well. So in a blink, I went from, you know, I'm just taking dance classes to I'm on the MTV Awards stage and I'm on a Broadway stage and, and I'm shooting music videos with Pink and Usher and people like that. And it just, it felt like it happened overnight. And now I'm not the cool kid, you know, hanging out in high school anymore. I'm in New York and I'm in LA and I'm hanging out with what I perceive to be the truly cool people. The coolest people at the time, you're hanging with iconic stars of the day, like you shook Michael's hand. Yes. Like, <laughs> holy cow, right? That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, it, I just found myself with the biggest stars in the world. And that's when, I don't think I drank in high school for stress or anxiety or anything. I think it was about just being cool and partying and having fun. All of a sudden I realized that the drinking helped me in all these social situations that it just just made me feel a little more comfortable. And without even knowing it, I started to rely upon it. So as much as my career was going like this, my drinking was going right along with it. And no longer could I just hop in the circle and dance at the club and go talk to that girl and, you know, and, and do my thing. It was, no, 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 I need drinks first before I can do that. And so as great as everything was that was happening around me and meeting incredible people and dancing on amazing stages and making really good money for a young guy, the drinking was taking precedence over all of it. And I would pick the drinking over other opportunities. I would have chances to go hang out with people that everyone would love to hang out with, the Justin Timberlakes. And I would say no because I could go with one of my drunk buddies to the local bar and get hammered. And I would choose to do that because I knew how I would feel that night doing that, as opposed to the stress and anxiety of hanging out with the, the cool people and trying so hard to fit in and be as cool as them. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out and relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate, 
because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. So to play that back, I just want to share like my perspective, like reading your book and just hearing that and also just paying attention to the music scene in the late 80s, early 90s, because you really came you came into this like in the early 90s, mid 90s, right? Uh, late 90s. Yeah. Late 90s. Because there was a time, I have a few years on you, there were no backup singers to bands. At least that's what how I remember it. Like, you know, you, you know, there are no backup singers for the Stones or Duran Duran or Depeche Mode or some of the bands like I grew up with. And then all of a sudden, like every act has dancers, right? So it it is like your story is you hit the wave at the right time. Like you mentioned it, right place, right time. So here you are, this kid from New Jersey working his butt off. What I sense is maybe an unhealthy relationship with perfection because you want to have it be perfect and be the best you can. You're in this top echelon of performers. You feel like you have to drink to make it happen. And everyone else would want to hang out with Justin Timberlake. And you're you're just getting hammered with your buddy. It's an amazing story. And you continue this. And then your career then eventually gets to Europe, uh, which I want to I want to get to next. But before actually before we get there, as you spent time in this arena with the stars that we idolize and backup dancers that we idolize and we try to learn their moves and current day, knowing that there's a connection between us as fans and everyone we see on stage. Not to get into any specifics about any particular people, but can you bring us into that world as far as like, what's that like? And like, maybe advice for us as fans, if this makes sense of like, how, how do we hold these people in such a light, but we don't hold them up on a pedestal? That makes sense. Because there is a connection, like they have a connection with the fans and we have a connection with them. And at times it feels unhealthy. And I imagine you're in this community and you're not the only one drinking. They're all going through a little bit of whatever they happen to be going through and treating it in whatever ways they happen to be treating it. So I was hoping you could share a little bit about that, Dan. Yeah, well, I think it's important. I think sometimes it's easier to look at athletes. We look at these, um, you know, I'll talk about the guys who play for the Giants or the guys who play for the Yankees. And we look at them almost as like superhuman, right? They're not like us. You know, It's that's Eli Manning. It's Aaron Judge. He's a monster in a good way. Yeah, it's, it's Aaron Judge. You know, and we look at them and I think we often forget that, yes, they make a ton of money and, and yes, they're in the, the bright lights. But at the end of the day, they have the same problems that we have. 
you know, maybe they don't have financial problems, but they got problems with their families, with their boyfriends or their girlfriends, with their friends, all these different things. They, it's a lot for them to juggle as well. And I think we forget that sometimes as fans and we think, God, that person has it all. And they're amazing and they're incredible. And, you know, I always talk about the story. I talk about this in my book as well. Justin Timberlake came to me. We were working and cried his eyes out to me because he was worried that Britney was cheating on him at the time. And I remember just being like, what, what is happening right now? Like, you're Justin Timberlake, dude. First of all, you're dating Britney Spears. That's amazing. Yeah, you could date anybody you want. But yeah, second of all, if you don't like it, forget her. Take your pick. What's the problem? You know, and it's like, and I, I was I was awful to him at that time by not offering any helpful advice. I gave him nothing. But it showed me like, man, he's got the same problems we have. He, his, his heart's breaking over his girlfriend, possibly cheating on him. You know, and it puts in perspective, like their lives are just like our lives. I was getting to perform on these stages in front of tens of thousands of people, you know, on MTV awards with millions of people watching all that. And you get that high, that amazing high from that. And you think you're on top of the world. But I got news for you. You wake up in the morning in your bed, hungover, and your life is just like everybody else's. You know, maybe I'm waking up in a nicer hotel, but my problems are just the same, if not worse. Now you're able to hide it. And that's what I was able to do for so long. You could put a mask on and you can put all these shiny objects around you to make everything look better. But at my core and at Justin's core and at Aaron Judge's core, it's all the same shit. We're all living the same, the same life. We all can crack. We can all break and deal with imposter syndrome and worry and anxiety. And the difference is they're doing it on this massive stage. And as fans, I think we're like, well, you owe us. You owe us to be perfect. You owe us to entertain us. You make all this money. We buy your albums. We go to your games. And we don't really treat these iconic performers on whatever stage with as much kindness as we, as we could. Of course, we don't really treat ourselves with as much kindness as we could. But we certainly can beat up that celebrity, the actor, the actress, the singer, and judge them and rip through Us Magazine back in the day and all that jazz like that. I think that's why I brought up the athletes, too, is I always think we have to be careful. You know, my brother is very guilty of this, and I let him know it. That's why I'm not afraid to say it on here. But he always is the first one to be cursing out Aaron Judge for striking out or for someone on the Giants not playing well that day. And, you know, I'm just like, dude, you don't know. You don't know what else is going on in this guy's life right now. First of all, maybe he just struck out because he is a bad swing on a tough pitch. But you don't know what he's dealing with. It's like... He might be having a crisis in his life right now. And we're all sitting there. All 80,000 people are screaming at them, you know? So it's, I think we have to remember, you know, that everybody's human. And, you know, as we were saying, it's just, just because they make more money, they're in the spotlight, doesn't mean that they're not dealing with the same stuff that the rest of us are dealing with. Absolutely. And I'll include business leaders because that's a little bit of my turf. Corporate leaders, C-suite, big famous people. They're going through the same stuff as a junior employee. Again, different in some ways because they live in a bigger house and probably a nicer neighborhood and all that jazz and drive a nicer car to work. But all the human qualities, all the humanity, that's the same. That's the same. 
And if we can all treat each other with a little bit more kindness and understand that we only see the tip of the iceberg. We don't see everything below the water surface. And we love to judge the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. And I think it's a way for us, as we point the finger towards others, we don't have to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. So let's talk about Europe. So when we first met and you invited me on your podcast, you were kind to do so. I found your book, the first link took me to a Dutch version. And I was like, who is this guy? And I'm like, (laughs) what happened that brought you to Europe? Because you had this wonderful career going on, obviously an intense drinking problem here in the States. And now you're in Europe. So it's almost like you're spending time in both places. Sometimes it felt like at once, but trading between Europe and the US. So can you share a little bit about what happened that led you over to Amsterdam and the Netherlands? Yeah, well, as I was talking here in the U.S., you know, with my career going so well, when they decided to start the show uh, So You Think You Can Dance in the U.S., I was one of the first choreographers and and judges that they hired for the show. And I was on the show in the U.S. for the first uh, three or four seasons. And then they asked if I would go out and help launch the show in different countries around the world. So I went to Canada, I went to Australia, places like that. And I went to the Netherlands and the show just took hold in the Netherlands just became instantly popular. And instead of just helping them start the show, they said, hey, can you come back and do another season? I went back and did season two. Can you come back and do another season? By the time I was doing the third season of the show in the Netherlands, the network I was working for over there said, we want you to do Holland's Got Talent, their version of America's Got Talent. And then we have this other show for you. And before I knew it, I was working there for 12 years, doing three shows a year. I starred in a movie as an actor, and by the way, I'm not an actor, (laughs) but I acted in the movie. And much like everything else in my life, it just kind of happened, right? It's like, I went over there, I did a very good job on the show, but it just kept rolling over into the next thing. And, And so all of a sudden I was spending three months out of the year doing television shows in the Netherlands. And it was two sided for me. One, I was making good money. So I enjoyed the paycheck. And two, all the pressure was off. I was by myself over there. I was in hotel rooms, isolating, drinking at night. Nobody knew. My wonderful, we were talking about Natasha before, who was my wife at this point. She's at home, eventually with the kids. You know, this was like my escape. And so I loved that I could make the money and I loved that I could be on my own and drink. And so I embraced those things. And that just... That just kept the ball rolling over in Europe. Incredible. So the drinking continues as your career is scaling. Was there anyone in particular, did they pull you aside, Dan, and say, hey, listen, almost like your soccer friend from high school, or maybe not the friend, the the square kid, who said, hey, listen, we have a game tomorrow. Was there anyone in your life at that time that said, hey, I've noticed you got a bit of a problem. Let's figure this out. Was there anyone? Just Natasha. Natasha was the only one who would question my actions because she's the only one that that really saw them. I was so careful about who I drank around and how much I drank. So when I was in Europe, you know, yes, I'm going to dinner with television executives and we have after parties for the shows and things like that. But I always made sure I kept it under control until I got back to the hotel. And then I would really turn it on when I was by myself. 
Natasha would question my behavior, but I was so manipulative and entitled. And I would just make her, and I know how this sounds when I say it, I would make her understand why she was wrong and why my behavior was okay and why it was justified. Yeah, because here it is. You're making good money. You're providing for your family. You have a moment where it's happy. Let's have a drink. Yeah. You have a moment where it might have been a rough day. Need a drink. There was a reason to drink for every moment. And you're like, hey, hey, boo, I got this. This is not a problem. Look at the family we've created. Look at the lifestyle we have. Like, this is not a problem. It goes back to the narrative of high school. We don't have a problem here, folks. Look at someone else. Look at those other guys or gals that really have a problem. They're down on their luck and all that jazz. This is what I would say to myself. What alcoholic do you know gets up at 5.30 in the morning, is at the gym at 6, working out for an hour and a half, is in great shape? I was on the cover of Men's Health magazine over in Europe. Like, talk about the irony, you know, that, that I was on the cover of Men's Health. But it was moments like that, that I would have this, I'm fooling everyone. Like, look what I'm doing. And so I just, I didn't even question myself because I would even convince myself, well, it can't be that bad, right? Even when I would have a really, because occasionally I would have a very ugly night and just go off the charts. And I would still by halfway through the next day, be able to convince myself, all right, it's not that bad, you know, and brush that under the rug and keep moving forward. Because everyone has a bender every now and again, right? So like, hey, I'm no different than my next door neighbor who got plastered at the community picnic or whatever. Like, you know, so big deal, right? So that's the narrative. And I found the people like me, like that was key. Of all the people I worked with on all the shows in Europe, I found the two or three people who liked to party like me. So they were the only ones I hung out with. And at home, I found the one or two people, other husbands who drank like I did. Sure, I'll go out with them, you know? Not going out with any of these other people because that was like holding up a mirror to me, but I'll go out with him and him because I know they're going to party like I will tonight. And they won't judge you. They embrace me. They love it. Yeah. Because they're just like me. They thought you were a cool kid. Yeah. Yeah, you were a cool kid. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's on Men's Health. He's dancing with all the stars and he's a TV personality. I want to hang with him because I live in suburban New Jersey and I want to have some excitement, right? So I'm going to hang out with a cool kid. So let's talk about the worst day. That day where you hit rock bottom and you really needed help. Can you bring us to that day? Yeah, well, you know, we talked about all this entitlement and the facade that I built up and um, that I lived behind for so long. But when the pandemic hit, like it did for so many, it took everything away. And no longer could I travel and be by myself. No longer was it, well, look at me, I'm on TV or, you know, look what else I'm doing. I'm home in suburbia, New Jersey, you know, just like every other dad, husband, Nothing to do. <laughs> you're on Zoom and you're learning how to speak in a different language or whatever hobbies we created back in the day. So I'm not even on Zoom. I'm not even working, right? It's It just shut down for me. I was feeling the heat myself too. It's not just I couldn't show anything anymore. I was saying, what are you going to do? Everything's gone. And how long is this going to go on for? 
Yeah. How long is it going to last? Yeah. A lot of worry and anxiety. And I, having never learned how to deal with anything other than having a drink, like you said, good day, bad day, whatever, stressors, I just, I started drinking more at night, eventually earlier in the day, maybe two months in, I was drinking every day by lunchtime. By six months or so into the pandemic, I was drinking at eight o'clock in the morning. I don't know about most people. I could only survive for so long like that. Not only did I feel like hell and I could no longer pop out of bed in the morning, I was the last one up in my house at this point. I looked like hell as well. I looked like a different person. My daughter walked into our bedroom one morning after a particularly bad night. They were all bad at this point, but this was particularly bad. She walked in and looked at me laying in bed, unable to get up. She was nine at the time and just had this fear in her eyes. I think she thought that I was dying. She didn't know what was happening. And she said, you know, daddy, are, are you okay? And I just, I had that moment where I said, all right, you did this to yourself. You've done it to Natasha. For some reason, I was okay with that. But I was like, I'm not doing this to my kids. I'm not gonna. And I walked down the hall. My wife was staying in the guest room at the time because she was no longer sleeping in our bedroom with me. She couldn't stand me. And I just said, I can't do this. I can't figure this thing out. I need help. That's all she needed. She was on the phone finding a rehab place for me. Now, (laughs) five minutes later, I regretted that. And I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. I'll figure this out. You know, but it was too late. I had said those words and... She was on the phone and within 40 hours or so, I was, I was in rehab. Wow. Do you still remember the face of your daughter when she said that to you? I'll never forget that. And I, I haven't asked her yet. We talk a lot in my house about sobriety, about addiction, because I want to be very open about it, especially because it runs in my family. But I haven't asked her yet if she remembers that moment. I will eventually, but I remember it. I remember it. It's pretty amazing the state I was in that I remember it so clearly, but I do. Yeah, I figured you did. And when it feels right, you'll ask her about it. She was old enough that she should remember. You know, when I had my whole thing, my girls were too young to really remember all the specifics, but they remember different moments over time. And, you know, different exchanges about, you know, where I was physically and mentally about my recovery. And, and I still remember moments from my whole recovery. And so they stay with me and they're, they're part of my motivation and inspiration to keep on putting a good ripple into the world. So you get to rehab. And if I read correctly, you were drinking before you walked into rehab. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So Natasha is like taking you down from North Jersey to South Jersey. And the sense I got was she didn't necessarily slow down when you got to the rehab facility. She sort of just kicked you out, you know, in a very loving way to like, (laughs) listen, dude, go get help. I'll believe it when I see it. Because you were telling her many times over that you were going to stop, you know, stop when you guys got married, stop when you had kids, stop when the kids get older. You didn't stop. So here she is. Great. Dan, thanks for raising your hand. Takes courage to say, I need support, I need help, but probably not truly believing it until she saw it. 
So you get to rehab and you're drunk going into rehab. Is that correct? Pretty drunk. Yeah. Pretty drunk. That last two raw, right? It's like I brought, I think I brought like three beers in the car with me and drank them on the way there. Wow. I mean, imagine what that, as you just said about Natasha, like just, she was so done with me. I don't think she knew at that time whether she was going to stay or not, but she just needed me out of her face and out of her house and away from her kids. That's, I think, where she was. So I don't think she, I forget, I don't think. She didn't believe that this was going to work because all of the stuff I had said in the past was all bullshit and it didn't work. I didn't try to make it work. So I think this was just going to be another another one of his things and you know, we'll see how this plays out. But I think she was just happy to be rid of me for a month and I made it worse by drinking on the way there. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine how much she was shaking her head like, you know, this drive can't be over quick enough. Here's this guy, he asked for help. He's drinking as we go down to rehab, probably the longest hour and 45 minute drive of her life. So she drops you off. It's a 30-day treatment program, which seems for me way too short. So can you bring us into what is it like in rehab? Because I come at this from, again, high school days, pretty straight-laced. You would probably back then thought that was boring. So I really don't know anyone who's gone to rehab. So what's that like? Well, the admission process for me was the worst part about it. It is the most degrading, humiliating. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a whole different kind of bottom because it's, I've never been to, to prison. I don't know what prison's like, but the feeling of, okay, strip down, take all your clothes off. And here are two guys looking at every inch of you, taking pictures of you. Okay, turn around, bend over, spread your cheeks, all of that. You know, the, you're sitting there just saying to yourself, well, how did I get here? I was thinking of who I was, right? Everybody, look, look who I was. I was one of the cool kids. I was one of the cool kids. I was one of the cool kids. And now look at me, like what the heck happened? It was just, but I needed that, right? It's like, talk about putting me in my place. Yeah. And I needed it. And the rehab facility was nice. It wasn't five-star. There's no swimming pool. There's no room service. There's none of that. But it was, it was clean, decent food. There was a courtyard that you could hang out in, play volleyball if you wanted to. And it was filled with people just like me. And I realized that about two days in. Once I had detoxed a bit and got the garbage out of me and was able to go down into a meeting, and I remember they let me go downstairs and they said, you can go sit in on this meeting. And I remember walking towards that room and hearing all these guys laughing. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I walked in there thinking, the fun's over. You're going to get sober for your family, but the fun's over. So I couldn't imagine what they were laughing about. And going into that room and seeing all these guys smiling and talking and laughing and, and sharing, my head exploded. I didn't know what to make of it. I just all of a sudden found this sense of comfort. And within a couple of days, I'm talking with them and I'm sharing how I really feel and what happened to me. And after feeling like I was the only one that could possibly understand what it was like to be me, I realized they all understand. They all get it. 
yeah, we all come from different financial backgrounds and everybody has different careers and all that. But as we were talking about before, at our core, we all felt the same way. We were all dealing with the same stuff and how we were affected in our minds by our addiction was all the same. And I felt like I had found my people. I, I loved it and I, I couldn't get enough of it. I thought those 30 days were going to be torture. And I thought I'd be counting the minutes until I could get out of there. If I even made it the 30 days, I loved every minute of it. And I think it was a little strange, I think, and rightly so. When I would get on the phone with Natasha once a week, I think she was hoping that I was going through a, some form of torture. And I think she could hear how alive I was. And I would tell her how great this is. And I don't think she liked it all that much. I think in retrospect, she is grateful that it was the experience that it was. But at the time, it was, what is he laughing about? What is he happy about? Why? Right? But I was coming back to life. I was no longer in this fog. I was connecting to people for the first time in decades. That was rehab. As you were sharing, Dan, that's what came up for me. What was playing in my mind as you were sharing is Dan's feeling connection for almost the first time in his life in this way. And how powerful is that? And as you met with other men and other people who were there, it's like your story is my story. Like we're all, we're all connected. I am because we are, right? From that phrase called Ubuntu and just that notion that all of our stories are in all of us. We're all going through something, some of the periphery of it a little bit different and how we handle it different, but we're all going through something. I appreciate you sharing that. That's really special to feel, to feel that power of connection. When you say about feeling it for the first time in my life too, I'm curious how you felt about how I talk about my family in the book. Because I try to be very careful. I have lived a charmed life and I grew up with all the love and support that anyone could ask for. But my family and I, we always connected on a bit of a surface level. We were very much a showbiz, like smile and move forward kind of family. Most of the time we had a reason to smile and move forward because things were good. But it's unrealistic to think that things were always good. But we didn't talk about problems in my family. We didn't talk about when you were feeling bad, why you were having a bad day. It was, you know, shake it off. <laughs> Life's pretty good. Keep going kind of mentality. And when things weren't going that well, I mean, my parents went through a little bit of financial hardship at one point when, and my dad shifted jobs and things and everything turned out fine. But we never heard any of that. We never got a taste of any of it. When we lost family members that passed away very close to us, we never talked about it. It's like we went to the funeral, we came home, we move on. So I had never really shared that kind of stuff. What was really going on inside me? So to do that and to have other people do that back to me was a whole new experience. It's like, I'm still not used to this. Like me and you having this conversation right now, I'm not used to this. It's only been a couple of years. It's, it's still new and I love it. Like I could sit here and talk to you all day because there's, there's so much I want to say. And for the first time, because of that, I listen. I never listened before. I like to hear what other people have to say too, because as we know, we, I learned more from hearing other people's stories. And that was so foreign to me for so long. 
So it's changed my every interaction in the course of a day. When I was reading your story and you asked the question, like, how did I see your family? And in your family, I saw my family, the family I was born into, because we were, or we are very similar. We wouldn't talk about the hard stuff. We didn't talk about those moments where I felt like a complete loser or an imposter or any other ways to describe it. We talked about the Bills. Yep. And we talked about, hey, what do you think about the Yankees? Uh, Jeter had a good game. And yep. almost to this day, we still talk about that same stuff. We don't talk about the hard stuff. We, <laughs> we'll play it by ear. We'll worry about it when we need to worry about it. And so when I said you connected for the very first time in this way, I could totally appreciate how you grew up and what conversations were happening in your house and also the conversations that weren't happening that prevented connection on a deeper level. And so now you come to this moment where like, oh my gosh, I can, we can connect. This feels good. And so you're calling Natasha and Natasha's like, no, listen, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but you've caused this family so much pain. Dude, you better suffer in there. <laughs> you better get this right. I'm scared straight. I don't want you calling me all happy because, oh, by the way, I'm a single mom up here in Northern New Jersey as you're doing this thing. So don't be, don't be so happy. So I, I can appreciate a little bit of what was happening like behind the scenes. So now you're two and a half years sober, right? So part of Kintsugi, the lacquer is called Urishi, the lacquer that brings the pottery when it breaks back together. And then they put some gold in it or silver or platinum, usually gold. That's why it's called the golden repair. So it's that lacquer that when it dries, it's hard as a rock. It brings the pottery back together. And through Kintsugi, we celebrate the coming together, the connection, and the beauty that happens when we crack and come back together and the scars it leaves, the golden symbols of our strength. So for you, two and a half years in, because the relapse rate is not good. I think I've read some data that suggests that 65 or 70% of people that go into rehab relapse within the first year. So right now, you're beating the odds, but you're still... I imagine you would say you're still early in on your recovery journey. So what makes up your Urishi? What are the things that you're doing now that's helping you come together and stay connected? Well, I'd say first it starts with going to bed on time. I, I make a point of going to bed around 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. Unfortunately, my wife doesn't love that, but I need to wake up early in the morning and do certain things for myself before anybody else is awake in the morning. And in order to do that, I need to go to bed at a decent time. I make exceptions, but 75% of the time I'm in bed early. And then I wake up and I have a morning routine that I stick to. But thanks to you coming on my podcast, how you talked about how morning routines can become transactional, it woke me up as well because I realized some of it was transactional. And so I've been a lot more deliberate with it. But I wake up, I go at least 30 minutes, but I try to go an hour without my phone. I pray, I do a breathing exercise, I do a little bit of meditation. And sometimes I just sit, drink my coffee, look around the house, take it in, 
I always go through a gratitude list. I told you it's one of the last things I do at night with my kids and it's how I start my day. Those things I always do. And then I stay connected. I have my sponsor. I have sober buddies. I still go to 12-step meetings, you know, and then I jump at any opportunity I can to talk, to talk and share. You know, I go to therapy. My wife and I go to therapy together. I'm just trying to keep moving forward. I'm trying to grow. I'm very proud of myself for being where I'm at. I'm also very aware, and my therapist hits me over the head with this constantly. Dude, you're just starting. You're just starting. He says to me, you have figured out how not to drink. Now, now we're going to work on you. And I like that because I do feel like I am growing and getting better as a person, as a father, as a husband. One trait of mine that admittedly is not pretty, but I'm quite selfish. And I think my wife and I both thought that would go away when the drinking was taken out of it, but not the case. And so I've had to put a a real focus on how I prioritize things in my life, who I prioritize in my life. And so I just try to make a point of doing a little bit more each day to keep growing. I love that. You're about to enter the second half of your life and really learn how to live, which is really, which is really cool. When you write a book, there's an editing process. Is there anything that fell to the editing floor <laughs> that you wish you included in the book now that it's out and you've talked about the book a lot and you've done tours. So is there anything that was edited out? But when you look back on it, you're like, ah, oh, I wish I included that. Hmm. That's tough. I, two things that got left out. I don't know how much I regret it or not, but we cut out some recollection of things that happened while I was drinking because some people felt like it was glorifying the experience a little bit. And because I did have the good fortune of of this behavior in some pretty unbelievable places with unbelievable people, it felt like I was almost bragging about it. And I did not want that to be the case at all. So a couple things like that. And then there were some relationships I had with people, friends and things like that that I think painted an even clearer picture for what my interactions were like with people. I asked them and they asked not to be included in the book. And so I left them out. I don't know if it would have made a huge difference in the overall story. But for me, obviously being so deep into it, I know what it left out. But I don't know if it would make a difference to the readers or not. Well, if I'm being honest, it's a great read with all that stuff not in it. So feel proud about what you've put into the world. So we'll end on these two questions. One question is advice. So current day, there's a lot going on in the world. And we know we tend to grab towards things that numb us when we go through a lot. I think we're still going through COVID, maybe not in terms of cases, but just processing what we went through and some habits we developed. So you see a lot of dependency rising, whether it's alcohol, pot, other drugs. And we might know a Dan in our lives. What recommendation do you have for those listening? They might know someone like you in their life right now, and they don't know what to say. They see themselves living in such a way that it's, it's troubling. 
and they believe they have an unhealthy relationship with whatever substance they happen to be taking. Do you have any advice on how someone can start the conversation with that person and have it be well-received, or at least there's an openness to it, if that makes sense? First, I think you have to be okay with the fact that chances are it won't be well-received because we're just so defensive, right? We're so defensive and in denial, and we'll try to manipulate the conversation. So I don't know if you can tiptoe around it. I don't necessarily believe in tiptoeing around it. I think it's important to express that all you want is the best for that person. So if you start with that, and then you just say, hey, I'm just looking out for you. And you know, I just want you to know if there's ever anything, it's okay to come talk to me or talk to somebody else. Don't keep it to yourself. That's not necessary. I Very rarely do I think the person will take to that conversation right away, but you plant a seed. You plant a seed that they'll at least start thinking about it. Because I promise you, I knew for a very long time that I was in desperate need of help. I just, I wasn't accepting of it, but I knew it. And if the right person had opened the door for me, I don't know, maybe I would have walked through. Maybe. It wouldn't have been such a bad thing. I just put up such a great facade that nobody knew it. But it wouldn't have been such a bad thing if somebody opened that door for me. And maybe I would have walked through a little sooner. All right, here's the last question. I'm going to paraphrase a question that James Lipton used to ask on Inside the Actor's Studio. I'm not sure if you remember that show. Of course. So let's assume heaven and an afterlife exists. You arrive there and you meet your elders the people that came before you, what would you want them to share with you once you arrive? The elders from my life, like from my family? Yeah, or the people in your life, the people that came before you. I want to know the real, the real story. I appreciate that they tried to paint a very pretty, perfect picture for all of us as kids. They thought they were doing the right thing by protecting us from what was really out there. But I'd like to know. I have grandparents and great-grandparents who grew up in Syria who I know nothing about. I didn't even know we were Syrian until I was like 12 years old or something like that. You know, I'd, I'd like to know what life was really like. What is our background really like? What really happened? Maybe it just makes things a little bit clearer for me. By the way, I don't think I would have, if I was warned, I have a brother and a sister who are alcoholics. I have a grandparent. I have an aunt. I have another aunt who died of alcoholism. I mean, there's a long list and it never got talked about. And I'm not saying that if I knew everything that would have changed what happened because I wanted to be part of the cool kids, right? But it would have been good to know, I think. And how I say, I'm going to share this stuff with my kids because I think they deserve to know it and just make a more informed decision on things as they move forward. So I think it'd be pretty cool to hear about what really happened so in essence, you just want them to be honest and share their story. That'd be good. <laughs> well, sir, I think you're one of the cool kids <laughs> for new, refreshing, and completely different reasons. Because you, you show up in the world open and vulnerable and courageous, and you're getting after it, and you love your kids, and you love your wife, and you're putting an absolutely beautiful ripple into the world, right in line with our Kintsugi spirit. So I consider you pretty damn cool. So 
Thanks for being you and showing up in the world as you do. Thank you, Michael. And what I love about this whole way of living is me and you connecting, right? It's a friend of mine goes, whoa, you have a podcast now? You know you should have on the podcast? There's this guy, you know, and he told me about you and I reached out to you and boom, a few days later, we're talking, we're meeting. And then the impact you immediately had on my mornings. And I touched on this a minute ago, but it's made a huge difference already. Just kind of refocusing in my morning instead of just ripping through it so I can get on with my day. It has really changed how I feel and how I approach the rest of my day. So that's what I love about this. And part of the reason I'm thankful for having met you, connected with you. Likewise. Well, happy Thanksgiving. You too. Thanks for being on, Dan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed connecting with Dan. I think he's fantastic. I love how he's trying to figure this all out. He doesn't have all the answers. And quite frankly, none of us do. It's messy. It's complicated. It's hard. It's also joyous and happy and exciting. Life is all of this. And I'm so happy, actually. What I feel is mudita for Dan, appreciative joy that he's on this journey and connecting with who he is. As you may know, we like to do a short meditation, just two minutes, based on this week's story of connection. Our practice this week We'll be tapping in using affirmation to the cool kid that is within us all. So if you're ready, settle into a comfortable position. You may be seated. You might be driving or out and about. If you are, please keep your eyes open. For everyone else, you may wish to close them. And we'll drop in. Let's begin with a few healthy inhales. A nice, slow, releasing exhales. Giving ourselves permission to stop rushing, slow down, and relax the body. Allow yourself to settle into this moment. And I'll share an affirmation with you that you can repeat back to yourself or out loud. I have the courage to be authentic and true to myself. I have the courage to be authentic and true to myself. I have the courage to be authentic and true to myself. I'm one of the cool kids who treats others with kindness. 
And yes, I shine like a diamond. And yeah, I went there. Because any day with a little Rihanna is a good day. And when ready, you can ease your attention and open your eyes. And remember, you're one of the like-hearted cool kids. Like all of us. I would like to thank Dan again for coming on the Kintsugi Podcast. Dan, we love you. Keep rippling something worth rippling into the world. And know this. You do not ride alone. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the like-hearted humans at SASPod that make the Kintsuki podcast sound so great and help it ripple into all corners of this big blue marble that we all share. And now, I want to thank you for listening and supporting the Kintsuki podcast. And if you want to go above and beyond in your support, I could certainly use a kind rating, a review, subscribing, or sharing because it does something to the algorithm that I don't completely understand. But when you engage in this way, it helps others find our like-hearted community. If you've already done so, thank you for the extra support. And if you haven't done so yet, today might be a really good day to do so. And if you'd like to receive some additional resources that can help you connect with yourself and others, like my Better Life Workbook and the inspirational text messages I send throughout the week, and of course, our Pause, Breathe, Reflect meditation app, I'll put those links in our show notes. And remember, between now and next week's story of connection, when you have a challenging moment, Slow down and back to your breath. Know that you've got this and we've got you. And together, we will ripple something worth rippling into the world. I love you for listening and I hope to see you next week. Until then, toodaloo.